Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's very patient guest is Will Jewell. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Stuart. Uh, happy to be here. Good man, good man. Um, just as context as to my pointing out the patience, I'm in the middle of an IT nightmare, and Will's been very patient with me while I uh, dance around my office um, and does uh, adapt and improvise to get this podcast recorded. And here we are, recording show. We're going to talk about your brilliant film, Concrete Plans, which I saw at Fright Fest, and it was on. A, it was part of an online yeah. experience as opposed to a physical festival, which was very much the pattern of 2020. So anybody who's just switched this on and it's 2025, I hope to God the pandemic's over, and um, you've uh, you've been just come back from the cinema and you've had a whale of a time with your friends. Um, but but for now we're in a pandemic, and your Concrete Plans, having had a brilliant screening and a brilliant reception at Fright Fest, is now getting a release. So do you want to tell us? what the release plans are for Concrete Plans. Yes, well, in terms of the UK, we were due to have a cinema run in mid-November, but obviously a few weeks before the cinema's shut. So that is held. So it's out now digitally. It's released just for Christmas on it's on Amazon, Sky, you know, iTunes, Google Play, all, all the usual suspects there. Um, and then, you know, once the cinemas do reopen, we will look at whether or not to just do maybe a short run, do some Q&As, get out there again so we're probably looking at spring for that and the other news is we just, we are releasing in america in on the 5th of march so a little tiny british yeah it's gonna go across the pond so that's i'm quite quite intrigued by that um yeah indeed indeed because it's a it's obviously it's a, it's um it's a very british movie a very a very um very interesting movie and, and and in the review that i wrote when i when i saw it at fight fest it sort of it picked up on some of the sort of class warfare aspects that that that, that appealed to my sensibilities that you you brought out brilliantly. But before we go into those kind of details, do you want to give um, the audience who might not know about the film a brief synopsis to what Concrete Plans is all about? Yeah, certainly. It's um, kind of the story of five builders who are taken on to a renovated farmhouse in the Welsh mountains. It belongs to a rich guy who's inheriting it, played by Kevin Guthrie. He's kind of, he's been discharged from the army and isn't in the best sort of mental state. He's there with his, his fiance, who's Amber Rose Reber. And his financial advisor, James Lance, is buzzing around, uh, trying to sort out the inheritance. Um, 
It's got a lot of social tensions, payments are late, tempers fray, um, and it kind of goes off into some fairly dark territory once things boil over. So the first half things that we slowly, slowly bring the pot to the boil, and then once it boils over, it's um yeah, where how do they deal with what happens? Yes, I mean I I I um in 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 my efforts to try and explain it via other films and other TV references. There's there's the obvious to me, which is Alveda's own pet meat straw dogs, and then I felt like the more as I thought about this a bit more, because obviously your first thought is not always your best thought. Although I did still write it down, um, but then I went on to as I was as I've been thinking about it more, um, I figured Boys from the Black stuff and Riff Raff meets Best Laid Plans, which I think given the given the way the finale, I feel like that the Best Laid Plans element is where you know the magic of what you've done as a in terms of making it into a thriller, but obviously the Boys and Black stuff riffraff elements are to do with the kind of social realism that gets us to that great finale. I think that's a pretty accurate um, kind of summary. Weirdly, they were running all the play for today's on, on uh, BBC Two on Tuesday nights a few months ago, and I, I watched um, Boys, uh, the Black stuff, which was the the one off that then spawned the Boys from the Black stuff. Yeah, the feature length original one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I must have seen it when I was a teenager and it stuck in my head because I was watching it and so many of the themes and things from that have sort of been reflected into concrete plans. So it must have been one of those things that I saw really young and just stayed with me because I was I was quite surprised watching it, how much it kind of resonated with, with concrete plans. Oh, no, I mean, the whole idea of a bunch, a bunch of, you know, misfits and miscreants who are thrown together because they're desperate to earn a bit of money rather than do something illegal and then essentially be confronted with the moral ambiguities of doing what they thought was a legal thing in the first place and or trying to, you know, I don't know, save money or or get paid. And we, we like to think of, like, the 80s as being this, I mean, maybe, you know, not fondly remembered at all, but, you know, high unemployment, so it's just about getting a job. Whereas now, in the gig economy world we live in, just working for a bit. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of one of the themes in the film. In a way, everyone is kind of ripping everyone else off, but... The, the guy who's you know promising he's going to pay them, the payments are late. The boss, is, he, his, who's Steve Spears, is the foreman, is paying his crew. It turns out, you know, um, Goran Bogdan's playing Victor, who's the Ukrainian labourer. We find out he's being paid half what the others are on. And he's uh, that's just the way it is. You know, I could have got any of you guys, your guys. And that's, you know, it, shit flows downhill in that way. And turns out there's actually someone ripping off other people in the background towards the end. I'll try not to spoil. But it is that kind of that gig economy also. The kind of thing that the, the the people in the big posh manor house plus the builders living in scuzzy port cabins have got in common is they're all trying to avoid tax. And they're all kind of one's cash in hand payments and the other one's trying to dodge inheritance. So it's you know the it's they are living very different worlds, but they're all united by these kind of social trends and a lot of that is is quite topical and it's all buzzing around there. And like you said, gig economy, no job security. They they put up with living in a mouldy port cabin because it's the only job that they've got on the horizon. So, you know, what, what's the limits of the endurance you'll stick yeah, out? Yeah, I was listening. It's interesting yeah. with the with the people that own the property and supposedly have all the advantages, and yet they're trying to steal a march on people who are just trying to earn an honest living, um, however, however you want to cut that. And there was a podcast recently about um, Filipino housemaids whose visas run out and are living in Kensington, who are working for posh families on Kensington High Street and stuff. And they're getting paid five pound an hour, getting paid two pound an hour, and you just think to yourself, mm. these people are paying 
so little for what is I'm guessing the kids quite precious in your life. I mean, I'm you know I'm not a parent, so I can't I can't confirm or deny that. But I'm pretty sure from all the parents I've spoken to, kids become a number one priority, and you basically can run eight miles an hour faster than if you normally could if your kid's in trouble. You know, you could do that extra speed if you needed. Um, and it just struck me as odd that you would and and, it, and you could almost imagine when you were hearing the story that there'd be almost like a braggadoo going on. Oh, you're paying eight pound an hour for your cleaner. I'm getting mine for five. At the same time, yeah. buying Tarquin a three hundred pound North Face jacket and not batting an eyelid, and you kind of like it's a weird contradiction. And in a way, your your employers they're off for their kind of you know their 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 um their Cayman Island bank accounts and off to the West Indies and whatever to have their five style lifestyle, and yet they're ruling these poor builders with an iron rod. Yeah, he almost feels like that. He's sort of above them and. You know that, that there is this air of, of inbred superiority, and you know he's he's from a very once great kind of bloodline and military family. With um, so you know he feels that why, why do I need to to waste time worrying about you know your feelings and your circumstances? You know I've got enough to deal with. Um, and it's there is that very snappy air of, of superiority. You kind of that, that is one of the triggers of, of what happens in the film. Now you've you you mentioned about like obviously boys on black stuff maybe being in your subconscious because you, you kind of saw the similarities. But you, what you wrote and directed this film, so thinking about at the moment where you're writing this, what what was the the kernel of the idea that um, that sort of began you on the road to what eventually becomes Concrete Plans, the film that I've watched and enjoyed. Where, where does it start for you as an idea? It started about ten years ago. I wrote a short film um, which was there's, there's the core quarter cabin scene that's pretty much at the midpoint where there's a group of guys in a in a port cabin something bad has happened and one of them makes this proposition of look why screw up five lives for what we just did um let's all we've done every night is play cards because tv's bust let's play cards whoever loses this hand takes the blame for all of us the rest of us just fill our boots and get out of here and that was the kind of starting point is a short so i wrote the short didn't make it and me and Rob were looking for a low-budget idea that we could put in for eye features. So low-budget tends to mean, you know, contained not many locations, handful of characters. So suddenly that idea came back to me. It always, it always nagged at me because I'd, I'd kind of done little bits of work on building sites as a kid. And the fact that, you know, between us, we can only name three or four things ever been set on a building site. It's not been over, you know, it's, it's not been overused as a backdrop. I kind of, I like... The real, the sort of yeah, the realism of it because you have got dangerous weapons to hand, but it's not pulling out guns. It's power tools from being few that are all caked in rust and mud. So there was an element of danger there, and I kind of took that as the kernel, and then I grew it out from the start to imagine, well, how did these guys get to that point? And then I kind of grew it onwards from there, and thought, well, what would they do if this thing had happened? Um, so that was the kind of jumping-off point. Um, and it, yeah, it just grew quite organically out from there. So you so okay. So you essentially you had, you accidentally by developing the short film created a midpoint of a feature film that you retrofitted yeah, yeah. the journey to that midpoint and then created the destination for that for that card game to to hand to That's head it. for. So in that as as a, as an approach to writing a screenplay, how did you find having that fixed point, which obviously isn't the beginning. As, as your beginning, as it were. It was, it was quite a good jumping off point because it's such a sort of rich premise that it gave me a lot to 
to get my teeth into. Sometimes if you start writing, you've got the, the, the kernel of an idea. It can go down any one of so many paths. You can kind of get paralysis of choice. Yeah. So sort of knowing, well, I know what it gets to in the middle and I know where it goes from there. It kind of kept me on track in a way. I mean, because we're in development for about five years, I, I wrote a lot of drafts, so I explored it from every angle. But the, the, grad, the general sort of arc pretty much stayed the same. Some of the characters chopped and changed. There was an extra builder. A couple of those got merged into one. There used to be an architect. There was a, there was the sister of the guy in the house who was actually cast, and then we just had to, to cut for, for, for time, and we, we shot the film in 15 days. So Wowza. that was pretty nuts. So a lot of kind of got, got pretty hacked to the bones <laughs> to get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so um, in that sense, then, when you're doing all those drafts, what, what for you do you remember being the sort of biggest storytelling challenge that – that obviously we get to see now in the finished thing, but you you did all those different points of view, different angles that come in at the story. What what was the biggest thing to break in the story? I think the big it wasn't necessarily a plot point to break because the plot generally stayed the same. There's a few tweaks. It was more having writing something writing something that was so much a, a very true ensemble that there is not really a definite lead character. They're all kind of it's quite democratic in terms of the screen time they get and their, their roles within it uh, I, and that was a real tricky balancing act so i'd do a draft and then i feel oh, this this favors this character too much and this character here as a result feels a little bit thin so then i do another draft and bolt them up and then so i think the fact that we didn't just have a, a magic wand um waved and we got the budget after a couple of drafts was actually a good thing in terms of i knew those characters so inside out that mm. in the midst of a 15 days I still knew them like they were you know, living real flesh and blood people. So I knew what they would be. We've got to drop this scene. We've run out of time. Okay, well, in that case, let's, I'll pick something up and weave it into a future scene because I know what Jim would do. I know what Bob would do. So that was the main thing was getting that chemistry of uh, how many, how much of each character do we need to get the kind of optimum recipe and blend. Yeah, because your, your ensemble is pretty much solid until well into the third act and then obviously all the shit hits the fan as it were and then it you know it becomes a few less so to speak um but yeah everyone's present aren't they for a large part of this film yeah so there's a lot of screen time i wanted them all all to really feel 3d like very rounded before things start to happen and before they start to have to make these really increasingly bad moral choices i wanted us to care about them because you know when you see some films where the characters are just kind of, you know, victim number two and we don't really care about them. I wanted this to feel very, first half is very sort of character driven and organic and we get to know them all um, before we start to love them, hate them, you know, miss them, whatever happens. Yeah, and I think I think one of the things, the delicate, I guess it was it was a, it's a delicate dance to, to do is that you've in your in your ensemble, you've got characters who clearly have, straddled the wrong side of the law line in their past and others who are kind of what just what would you call it they're cocky but they've got no experience to back it up but they think they're the the big i am essentially you've got a mix of characters who are at different stages in terms of being a criminal from the the naive idealist to the hardened criminal and obviously once the shit hits the van and once things start to get real they've got different ways to go and it obviously is a, it's a it's a balancing act to have characters who are used to crime and not used to crime interacting with one another. And I thought that was something that felt very authentic in the film. That's good. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, there, a few of the reviews have said it's a real what if um, and what would you do 
in the situation, you know, in their muddy boots if you were thrown into that. And we actually, we took that and there is, we've created an interactive trailer, actually. Film Wales was the main back of the film, um, funded this this trailer we've done where, you know, the, the card scene we've talked about, yeah. you are offered this potentially packed with the devil, potentially save your skin. We've created, we, we shot some extra footage with the actor, Chris Riley, who plays Jim, he's great in it. Um, and he actually deals randomly selected hands of cards and it's like an online poker thing. So it's a trailer for the film, but you can actually play three or four hands of, of cards with him to see whether or not you end up taking the blame for, for what happened or whether you get away <laughs> with it. So no it is and i think that's the thing and and if it was just a bunch of gangsters doing a gangstery thing it'd be about executing it over not executing it whereas the problem of when things start to get bloody is that it's about who's going to hold the nerve and then you get the whole lord of the flies don't you really it's uh animal farm lord of the flies starts to happen it's absolutely that it is that kind of well you know where is the line? How far will you go for, for survival? And there is this sort of, there, there's a there's metaphors of the state of the nation in there very much that, you know, they are all stuck in this place in the middle of nowhere. They're starting to turn on themselves. There's sort of prejudice, social tensions and things start to boil over. And it is that, well, it, they, they start off all very, there's camaraderie and it's all, we're in this together. But the more the cracks kind of widen, the more it becomes kind of, survival and greed and just kind of trying to get out of there with your pockets filled and alive essentially now with you're saying you you've, you did it in 15 days and and with that 15 day shoot schedule that meant you had to lose things in terms of what you'd planned in the screenplay for for the first time filmmaker listening into that they be they might be asking you know wow the hell do you rationalize that you know isn't the script the script so how did you find making those compromises and how did you find it improved what you had in a way? Because they're, you're forcing yourself to have an happy accident, aren't you, in a way? You are. I mean, we had sort of two phases the script got squeezed because we had one of the funders change their criteria. We lost a chunk of money a month or so before. So we had to, I had to cut 12 pages out of what was already a very tight script that I've been owning, which is why we had to jettison a few characters and really make it. And weirdly, in a way, um, Rachel, our DP, read it and said, this is the best draft I've read. Um, because it was absolutely tight, but them going in with this this cut to the bone tight script, and then realizing that fifteen days as a schedule was not really that achievable, and every day we'd end up going, look, we run out of time, drop the scene. But then that night, I would have to pull it apart and work out, okay, well, if we have to lose this scene, how do I make the story still work? So I'd say, oh, well, actually, if I boil this scene down, the key bit I can't lose is these two bits of dialogue here. So I then that night have to rewrite them into a scene we're going to shoot the next day, and hope that didn't then get cut. So it, um, I think that was as I said. It's a good thing that I knew the script so well because I could kind of had the the mental dexterity to do that, even though I'm very little sleep. It was also useful actually. My, my um my, my script editor Claire Russell came up for for a day or two, so that's good to have someone to bounce off. And um, my editor Dave Wigram came up for a couple of days, and I kind of met him through being in a writers group. So I remember we were. We had to change the ending, and actually, one of the one of the whole characters' endings changed fairly significantly because we just didn't have time to shoot those last five scenes. And I had to be level with him and say, "Look, this is going to have to happen to your character, not all that." So me and me and Dave were pacing around in the yard at three, four in the morning, trying to bounce off each other how we write a scene that wraps up all of what was going to happen in those five scenes into one short scene. So it's it gets to that point. 
I, it, was, it, it was crazy. I mean, there were, those 15 days were just a blur. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just trying to hold on my fingertips and think, well, this is where the ship's going. As long as I come out of this with a story that hangs together, that's the main thing. I mean, the actors, the performances were just incredible. And I could see every day just that it was it, because it was very kind of everyone mucking in. We all, the big farmhouse you see there, there were 25 crew living upstairs. We were using it as the base. There was no real kind of niceties and it was all, all the, the cast and the crew were getting the food in the same hatch and just finding a chair wherever. It was all very kind of egalitarian. Uh, and the actors, because, I don't know if it's because of that, they had those sort of boundaries removed of being isolated from each other. They were almost spurring each other on and just, they were being, I knew the performances were great. My main thing was just that, and I knew it was looking great. It was just like, make sure this story works. And I think the most the most happy I was was when my editor did an assembly and he rung me about a couple of weeks after the shoot and just said, look, you've got a beginning, middle and an end. There are no obvious holes. We shot a few bits of pickup stuff, but the story hung together. So that, that was my main Well, belief. before we get to what you found in the edit, just very quickly then, Rachel, what's Rachel's surname, your DOP? Clark, Rachel Clark. Right, so Rachel, Rachel Clark, um, what, what was your conversation with her about the look and feel of the movie? Because in a way... You've got you've got three static characters as well as the people. You've got obviously the porter cabin. You've got the building site, which is the outside, and obviously you've got the inside the the house. And they they act almost like characters in themselves because the, the the feel of the film is very different when you're in the three different locations, aren't they? Yep, they they absolutely do. Well, a lot, the first time I met Rachel, we she came on board about six weeks before, and we, I sent her like five hundred images, and we spent a day sifting through the in, the images. Um, to ensure just I like that there's something in that image I like it's not that and our, our kind of our reference points were a lot of sort of gritty 70s thrillers when we shot on vintage lenses that gave us some of that look there was a lot more I had this thing about it being a kind of spaghetti western um, because it was the whole thing about sort of middle of nowhere hard bitten blue collar men being wronged and a sense of injustice oh very much so I can see that yeah that, yeah so that, that was a, that was a reference um it's interesting you pick up on those three locations being characters, but I actually prepared lookbooks and mood boards for each of those characters, and we had a colour palette. Very so inside the port cabin, everything had to be artificial, man-made, horrible, unwelcoming. It was bluey greens, yellowy, nasty light. Everything in the it's bloody horrible. Yeah, yeah, everything in the mansion house. A lot of my reference boards for that were from The Godfather. It was all very lovely wood, reds, natural lights. Um, you know, practical yellow lamps. Uh, and everything in the building yard had to be sort of flinty greys and greens and blues. So very, very, and that went to the art department, to the camera, to the gaffer. So they were very designed because most of the film is in those three locations. We only went to the lake one day. That was the only place that broke out of there. There's an irony to that as well, isn't there? Because, because in a way, before it gets a bit nasty, the only real warmth of relationships are within that horrible, ugly porter cabin. And the only ugliness is in the beautiful warmth of the, of the home. It's sort of, it's an interesting contrast of the venues, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting you picked up on that because that was very much kind of designed and the look and feel and making the locations characters. And yeah, so it's it's a very contained, I mean, 14 out of 15 days we shot. The the, port, the, the manor house was here and literally 100 yards away. The building site was on was, was in the grounds. I mean, in that, sen- in that sense then, what was the, say something like a, a port cabin, obviously you've designed on this, you've decided on this aesthetic, but then how did you managed to try what was your challenge is trying to keep that interesting as a visual 
place and for the characters to move around in. Well, things like there was cunning little tricks in there because we, we wanted, you see when they play cards, the builders have made a coolie light out of cardboard because we thought, well, we need to get that kind of online poker look. This The port cabin was such a cramped, horrible, small environment to work in. We were just on top of each other. I think we were, and it got really hot and smelly in there. Um, but we were like, we, there's nowhere to hide anything in there. So we thought, well, if we're going to hide, it has to be in plain sight. So we, we made out that the builders had constructed this themselves. So things like that, we had to be quite creative around solutions. Um, and really, you know, we rinsed every inch of those locations because they, they were tiny. In the, in the small of the bunk, the bunk cabin, there was only really two camera positions in there. So we just had to shoot a lot of those in just single shot. Going, to, uh, going into the edit, um, what, was, um, what was some of your favourite discoveries? I mean, you, you, you've got the relief at the assembly edit where you're told you've got your beginning, middle and end. And obviously a film, a film is written, shot and then edited. So what for you were, were some of the discoveries in the edit that, that you were kind of like, you didn't see coming from the, from the previous two stages? Really, even though we only shot for 15 days, we ended up cutting a few scenes in the edit because we, pacing was an issue. Um, the first half, it took too long to kind of get going. Um, so we lost a few subplots there that I was, was that hurt a bit because there were some really favourite lines of dialogue and thing in there. But I think it was finding the pacing and finding the little moments because you're particularly when you're shooting the port cabin, you're you're seeing your monitor over someone's shoulder and it's like this. And then when you get and seeing those beautiful little moments where things like say say Chris who's playing Jim and I always I said to him I don't want him to be a cardboard cutout baddie. And there's little moments where I mean the editor turns to each other and go, oh, are we starting to actually feel sorry for him? There's moments where he's quite vulnerable and quite fragile and quite lost a little boy. So it's finding those little moments. That was a joy. And I think the other thing I really loved in the post was we worked with Paul Hartman from Orbital, who wrote the score, um, who lives quite nearby in Brighton. And that was amazing because that was we were working the edit and it was it was right up to the last minute. Orbital was touring that summer, so the edit. He had to deliver it by X date, and of course, the edit overran. So he was trying to hit a moving target. We were still editing scenes that he was scoring, but just he, he we, me, and him had been pinging um, playlists to each other for um, a year and a half before me going for coffee and beers and chatting, and and we we knew, and he would always ask not about oh, what instrument or what's the mood, what's the tone for this. And I think when we did re had recut the first half quite a bit, that created space for these montages because I took a lot of scenes and collapsed them down. And they were great because that really gave Paul the chance to kind of really show what he could do without having to work around dialogue. And there's a simmering montage and a boiling montage. And he, even to the extent he sort of had synth loops coming up in the very deep in the mix and they, they get faster in the boiling one as things get to that point of things spilling over and, and the wheels coming off. So... That was quite a pleasure, that sort of creative partnership between uh, me and the editor and, and the um, I'm working um, with Paul on the score. So that, that was that was really, I'd, I'd kind of, uh, as you can see, I play bass very badly. So it, being able to speak kind of pigeon music before, at least I could vaguely communicate. It became quite fruitful. So that, that, was, that was fun. Now, there's an there's a, there's a, there's a ensemble cast that was established, but I just want to pick on two of your, two of your actors and the characters they play. Um, Stephen Spears, Bob, and um, William Thomas's Dave. Um, I mean, Dave. Dave was Dave's almost like to, Dave's the 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 is the core is the emotional core, the moral core of the film for me. Um, he's there for all the the right reasons, and obviously, 
everybody everybody's uh, potentially polluted by opportunity versus risk um so he's not perfect by any stretch and uh, like you established with bob um he he takes advantage of the system but he doesn't do it in a nasty way he just it is what it is you know some people cost more some people cost less but in terms of those two actors and i'm not just using two because we can't do them all but what did what did they bring to the characters that that you didn't imagine when you put them on the page that you were kind of like is there any any scene you can point to where you go that that was way above what I imagined they were going to be like and it just is what I wanted. I think the the scene with Steve Spears, um, him and Charlie Palmer Rothwell, where it's the uncle and the nephew, and all the home truths come out, and Steve, who's a big bear of a man, you kind of think, well, he could probably slap him down, but he's just. Uh, the, the emotions in that scene were amazing. I, I think Steve was, yeah, I've got those, those two are like Welsh royalty, and to have both of those in it uh, were just Steve bought a real. He's just he's got a very hanged on, very expressive face, and the fact that he's essentially the sort of the core of the good man, just trying to do good whilst everything is going wrong around him. And William is just he's like you're, he's, he's lovely working with William Thomas, who's you know Twin Town Bryn Cartwright, kind of grew up on him. And I did say to them, look, improvise around the script a bit. And bless him, for, for a 72-year-old, he probably added about an, an extra 40 F-words. <laughs> he's, he's, he like, he's like the sweariest old guy. You want. But they all kind of, you know, it's a film about builders. I couldn't be too swear police But I think his character alone, I mean, obviously, Bob's the foreman, so he's a businessman as well as being a builder. So he, he's got an entrepreneurial spirit, which has meant he's built something, even though it's a very fragile empire. Whereas Dave is 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 he's in his seventies. He should be retired by rights, and yet he's having to still go to work. You know, he's he is a product of that. Is the main product of Thatcher's Britain in your film? I feel that you know, there's no pension plan for that man who's worked in all it's weathers. Exactly. That always fashion hands. He's never got anything coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was always when you see an old guy on a building site, you just think as soon as their knees go or their back goes, that's it. Destitute. And that was the kind of inspiration for him. It just gives me to say thank you very much for speaking to us about Concrete Plans on Britflix Podcast. Thank you very much, Stuart. Uh, the film is out, as I said, on Sky, Amazon, Google, all of the rest of them. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Cheers. Three months or... Completion penalties will kick in. Get back to work now. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Well, it's just that the money to cash flow the material, you know, pay my men, it's three weeks overdue now. You're making a mug of you, Bob. You're gonna get it any day, all right? Any day, I promise. There's just something about him I don't like. I want you gone. There's a decent chance they go bust anyway. Richard, you said this was legitimate. They're closing the scheme down Thursday. Warrants. Dawn raids the whole shebang. You guarantee the money. Tuesday. I want that money. I want it now. We heard him on the phone. What part of that do you not fucking comprehend? Yeah, you can imagine how we feel.
Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.